Okay, let's uh, let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we turn to your word uh, this morning, we pray the same prayer that we prayed uh, during Sunday school. Lord, will you please speak to us in Jesus name? Amen. Please open up your Bibles to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. Sunday mornings when I'm teaching, we're going through the book of Judges. And um, uh, for those who are keeping count, we're up to the sixth judge. We started off with Othniel, then we went through Ehud, then we got up to Shamgar, then we went to Deborah, and then uh, Deborah in tandem with Barak. So by the time we get to Gideon, it's judge number six. Uh, When it comes to uh, Gideon, more verses are devoted in the Bible to the account of Gideon than any other judge. Uh, Gideon covers uh, Judges chapters six, seven and eight, and that's a hundred verses. His closest rival is Samson, uh, who covers four chapters, Judges 13 to 16, but he only has 96 verses. So Gideon comes up top. Uh, We're going to be doing Judges chapter 6, verses 1 to 24 this morning. I I couldn't get through the whole chapter, so we're just doing the first 24 verses. And and the talk is really in two halves. The first half, we're going to be looking at uh, the Midianite oppression of Israel. And the second half, we're going to be looking at the call of Gideon, where God calls Gideon. So Midian and Gideon, that's us this morning. Let's read um, uh, the first half, Judges 6, verses 1 to 10. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves and the strongholds which are in the mountains. So it was, whenever Israel had sown... Midianites would come up, also Amalekites, and the people of the east would come up against them. Then they would dis- then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Also I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. As we enter Judges chapter 6, Israel has now entered the fifth cycle of oppression and deliverance. What we see is that Israel lives in peace, but they they enter into idolatry. They wander away from the Lord. So the Lord raises up a, another nation to oppress Israel and put them into a place of subjugation. They would cry out to the Lord from that place of subjugation and the Lord would raise up a deliverer, a judge, and he would uh, fight back 
this invading nation and bring some sort of spiritual restoration between Israel and God and peace would happen but then Israel would fall away again and so this is the fifth cycle uh, the fifth time that Israel have wandered away from the Lord and the fifth time God has brought oppression in and this time they're oppressed by the Midianites now we've come across uh, the Midianites and people from Midian before they are the descendants of Abraham so in a sense they're cousins to Israel now I don't know how many of you here knew that Abraham had two wives after Sarah died um, Abraham married again to a woman called Keturah and uh, it was through the union of Abraham and Keturah that they had uh, Midian from which all the Midianites are uh, descended you can read about that in Genesis 25 verse 2 and later when Moses had fled Egypt having uh, murdered an Egyptian he found shelter with the Midianites they showed him favor and he married a Midianite her name was Zipporah you can read about that in Exodus 2 verse 21 and one of the tribes of the Midianites the Kenites allied themselves with Israel and they came and dwelt in the promised land with Israel having uh, allied themselves with the God of Israel however the other tribes of Midian opposed Israel they were anti-Israeli and uh, there were Midianites who were involved in selling Joseph into Egyptian slavery in Genesis 37 and in Numbers 25 verse 17 the Lord actually spoke to Moses and he said treat the Midianites as enemies and kill them so these Midianites have been a long-standing enemy of Israel by this point. And now they are being used by God to bring discipline to Israel. There's a quote, uh, an anonymous quote that says, Affliction is God's shepherd dog to drive us back to the fold. And this is what Midian is. They are God's shepherd dog to drive Israel back to the fold, to the fold of God. And you see from this place of discipline, this oppression by Midian, Israel will cry out to the Lord and the Lord will raise up a judge named Gideon. But before we are introduced to Gideon, let's familiarise ourselves with the situation of his day. Now, this is not just the Midianites, but it's a coalition with uh, the Amalekites and some people, some other raiders from the east. And these raiding parties are destroying the harvest, the cattle and uh, the sources of food in their country. They're, they're leaving the land in devastation, leaving the people impoverished and hungry. But this is not an arbitrary act of misfortune that has come upon Israel. This is a God-ordained act. And it is made on the basis of the covenant between God and Israel. Now the covenant was first stated to Israel at Mount Sinai in Arabia in Exodus not long after the Israelites came out of Egypt. Forty years had passed and the covenant was repeated a second time at Kadesh Barnea and you can read about that in Deuteronomy. And in both cases the Lord had clearly stated you shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. And the Lord repeatedly warned Israel against false gods of the other nations. And the terms of the covenant stipulated that discipline would fall upon Israel when they walked in disobedience to his commands. And Israel were following after false gods. They were being disobedient. And so 
God was honouring the covenant by bringing in this discipline through the Midianites. God was honouring his covenant, but it was Israel who were not. What do we read in Judges chapter 6 verse 1? It says, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now I'd like you to notice that word evil. Israel didn't just sin before the Lord. Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. This is no small charge that is levied against Israel. I wonder whether we could just jump back to that covenant and just read one or two aspects of it. Can you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 12? We'll keep our finger in Judges 6 and go back to Deuteronomy 12. And once we're there, I'd like to read a few verses, verses 29 to 32. Deuteronomy 12, 29 to 32. And it says here, when the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess, and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abomination to the Lord which he hates they have done to their gods. For they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. These are part, of, part and parcel of the terms of the covenant that God and Israel made together. And Israel were charged to, to displace and destroy the nations. And uh, they were able to do that with God's help. But they were also charged to not inquire or follow their gods or to add the worship of their gods to the worship of Yahweh. Yet Israel disobeyed this command. They mingled the paganism with the worship of Yahweh. And this was an abomination to the Lord and made Israel a foul stench to him. What's more, the pagan nations burnt their children in fire to their gods. Specifically, this is the worship of Molech. Molech was an idol uh, with a head of a bull with outstretched arms and a fire was stoked beneath the arms and a baby was placed in the arms of that, uh, of that idol as a sacrifice and that child died by burning to death. It was absolutely horrific and Israel were partaking in this practice. So this is not just sin. This is evil. And so we read again in Judges 6 verse 1, the Lord delivered them into the hands of Midian for seven years. And so we will see Israel oppressed and harshly treated. And we will see Gideon as our hero to come and deliver Israel. But let me say, do not pity Israel what's come upon them. Do not think Israel are the victims here. Israel has acted wickedly and God is acting justly according to the terms of the covenant. The, Midian, the Midianite oppression was God's justice for their wickedness. OK, so um, reading on, I just want to reread uh, from verse two. And it says, and the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel because of the Midianites. The children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves and the strongholds which are in the mountains. So it was whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up. Also Amalekites and the people of East would come up against them. 
then they would encamp against them, destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. Now the Midianites lived in um, modern day Saudi Arabia, and I think what I'm going to do is I'm just going to show you a quick map because it makes it easier to understand what is actually going on here. Um, now here we see them, and down there in the bottom right you can see uh, the area that the Midianites occupied, circled in red. And they would come raiding from the south, and they would work their way up north towards Israel, and they would be joined by the Amalekites. The Amalekites would come from the west, and uh, the Amalekites dwelt in the south of Israel in a place called the Negev, the wilderness area. Uh, so they would join uh, the Midianites, and also from the east, we see that eastern raiders would join them from indeterminate tribes. And then these three uh, forces would join in, in a, in a co coalition and continue to move north uh, on the east side of the Jordan. Now, in Judges chapter 6, verse 33, we're told they encamped in the Valley of Jezreel. Je the Valley of Jezreel is exactly the same place where Barak fought against the Canaanites. It's right slap bang in the middle of Israel, uh, in the tribal territory of Issachar. And so what happened is this alliance continued to move north and they would cross over the Jordan, it would seem, and enter into the middle of Israel in the tribal area of Issachar. And then they would spread out. Uh, they would, we don't know for certain whether they went north, but certainly they went all the way south because we're told in verse four, they reached as far as Gaza, which tells us they went the full breadth and the full depth of the land. Now, Midian was a nomadic uh, Bedouin type of people, and they were not interested in settling the land. Their objective was to raid for food and cattle, and they would wait until the harvest is ready, then come a raiding. And they would sweep through the land, we're told, on their camels, camels being sure-footed, fast animals, and they would take what they want and destroy the rest. And then afterwards, they would return to their own land. So the description of them as locusts is an apt description as they would come in and just overpower any opposition sweeping through the land. And we can see that they were a cruel people because we are told in, in verse 4 they would destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey. Now, not content with taking the food for themselves, they then made sure there was nothing left for Israel. They, they left them starving, struggling to survive. And no doubt anyone who stood in their way, they would kill. And no doubt rape accompanied the pillage as well. And such was the fear these raids caused Israel, is that the people retreated into caves and, and mountain strongholds. And uh, they would take as much of the grain and livestock as they dared to be hidden with them. Um, and then the rest of the land would be left for the Midianites to sweep through like a plague of locusts. Gideon was from the tribe of Manasseh. And the tribe of Manasseh was right in uh, the middle 
of uh, the land of Israel. And we're told later on that the Midianites made camp in the Valley of Jezreel. The Valley of Jezreel was just north of Manasseh. So if they had come in uh, over the uh, Jordan, camped just above Manasseh in the tribal territory of Issachar in the Valley of Jezreel, and then swept down, these raiding parties would have gone right through the whole territory of Manasseh. And so Gideon would have seen and experienced the very worst of the raids, leaving devastation in their wake. Now, as I was reading this and imagining this in my mind, the, the one thing that came to my time, mind time and time again was a film that I saw uh, a number of years ago called The Seven Samurai. I don't know whether anybody here has seen that film. It's a, it's a Japanese film uh, uh, made by Kiro Kurosawa back in 1954. And what it is, is it shows a, a Japanese village where people grow rice in the paddy fields. And this raiding party comes in and they completely devastate the village, taking all of the grain, all of the crops, killing anybody that stood in their wake and then leaving the village destitute year after year. And this village lives in absolute fear and terror of these raiding parties. And I couldn't help but feel as if that is exactly the same thing that is uh, happening here to um, Israel. This, this little group of villagers get together what little money they have and they go looking for help and they find a ronin, a lone samurai without a master and they say, look, we'll give you everything we can if you'll come and help us. And this samurai gets together a group of seven samurai and they form a, a, a band of people to be able to fight back the raiders. The film was remade in the early 60s as The Magnificent Seven and instead of uh, samurai, it was cowboys led by Yul Brynner. So if you want to look at Gideon as our Yul Brynner, that works for me. Um, and it was also remade again in the early 90s as It's a Bug's Life, which might be more on some people's level. And uh, there we see it's a colony of ants that are being raided by grasshoppers that go through and devastate the land. And grasshoppers is, uh, is a much closer picture to what is happening here. Uh, but yes, reading on in verse six, we read, so Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Israel was greatly impoverished. Um, in the New Living Translation, it says Israel was reduced to starvation. In the uh, ESV, it says Israel was brought very low. And that's a very good translation. Israel was brought very low. The Lord allowed Israel to reach an all-time low, where from this point of hopelessness, the only place they could turn was God. And the Lord is the same today as he was yesterday, and he operates the same way. He will allow people to reach an all-time low, because he knows it is only when people hit rock bottom often will they cry out to him. And we know it through the many prayer times we've had. When we're praying for people who don't know the Lord, they're, they're hitting a tough time. But we instinctively know that from that tough time that they're going to be more open to the things of God than they are otherwise, uh, you would otherwise do. Now, Israel, they knew how this worked. They'd been here before. We live how we want to. Things get bad. We cry out to God and he sends us to the de a deliverer. But not so this time. This time the Lord sends a prophet. 
because the Lord wants to have a word with his people before he does anything to help them from their low point. So we read there in verse 7, And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel, who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you, and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Also I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you will dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. See, the prophet gets to what is called the root of the problem. Where are Israel? They are low. They are oppressed. They are starving. And what are they doing about it? They're crying out to God. They're saying, help me. Help me, God. Help us, God. But God doesn't send help immediately. God sends a prophet to show them that their biggest problem is not the Midianites and is not the misery they're in. Their biggest problem is their disobedience. That is the reason for the misery they're in, their disobedience. We are told Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites. And God, it's as if God says, what's the problem? And Israel says, we're miserable. And God says, why are you miserable? And Israel says, the Midianites. And God says, no, 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 no. Don't point the finger at the Midianites. They're not the problem. You're the problem. It's your disobedience that is the problem. And you know what? Mankind doesn't change very much over time. We may have iPhones and petrol-driven cars today, but Christians in the 21st century AD are just the same as ancient Israel in the 12th century BC. We are still short-sighted so as to not see our sin, and we still blame others for our misery instead of taking responsibility ourselves. Two Christians are struggling in their marriage, and God says, what's the problem? And they say, we're miserable. And God says, why are you miserable? And they say, it's my partner, it's their fault. And God says, no, 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 no. Don't point the finger at your partner. You are the problem. It's your disobedience that is a problem. Are you loving your wife and being a servant to her? Are you submitting to your husband, showing him respect? Before we start blaming our problems on somebody else or something else, come to the Lord and make sure that you're in a right relationship with him, that you're walking in obedience to all that he's directed and commanded you. You know, a Christian... Another scenario, a Christian is struggling with their children. And uh, this is a bit closer to home for me. And God says, what's the problem? And you say, I'm miserable. And God says, why are you miserable? And you say, it's the kids. And God says, no, 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 no. Don't point the finger at your children. You're the problem. You don't like the fact that they're shouting. How do you treat them? Do you shout at them? They're not listening to you. Yes, but do you listen to them? They're not behaving in the way that you want them to. Are you showing them the character of God or are you responding to them in the flesh? Are we being obedient to the things that God is calling and commanding us to do? Or are we blaming our problems upon something else? 
You know, Israel enjoyed peace all the while a judge or deliverer was alive. But the moment the judge died, Israel returned to their sinful and evil ways. This is what we see happening here in this chapter. And the problem was Israel looked towards men, but they didn't look towards God. Men came and went, judges came and went, and so did the peace that they brought with them. Whereas if they'd looked to God, God remains constant and true. And if Israel looked to him and obeyed him, they would enjoy unending peace. And it's because they disobeyed God and stopped looking towards him that these problems came in. Read again what the prophet says. The Lord reminds Israel, I brought you up from Egypt. I brought you out of the house of bondage. I delivered you out of the out of the hand of all who oppressed you. I gave you the land. I am the Lord your God. And I said to you, do not fear the gods of the Amorites, but you have not obeyed my voice. Once again, mankind doesn't change very much over time. And Christians in the 21st century AD are just the same as ancient Israel in the 12th century BC. We are still short-sighted so as to look to men instead of looking to God. We should not be looking to men. We should be looking to God. I can't tell you the amount of Christians who follow a particular Bible teacher. And it's like they become groupies to this Bible teacher. They follow him around the country. They attend all of his conferences, listens to all his teachings. He can do nothing wrong. And their doctrine is based upon what this Bible teacher says. What they do is they put another brother on a pedestal and rely on what they say as gospel instead of cultivating a closer and more personal walk with God. Instead of reading and studying the Bible for themselves and praying over the scripture and asking God to help them understand. And what happens when that Bible teacher gets it wrong? And what happens when that Bible teacher dies or God forbid that Bible teacher stumbles? Don't make man your foundation stone. Make God your foundation stone. Endeavour to get to know the Lord deeper yourself. Endeavour to study the word of God yourself. Don't just take on board what Ian and I say or any other Bible teacher. Go back to the word of God and study it for yourself. It was God who brought Israel out of the world. And it was God who brought Israel out of the house of bondage. And it's God who brought you out from the world and out of the house of bondage. It is God that you should be looking to. And this is what this prophet is seeking to do, to generate a national repentance and say, look, it's not just enough for me to raise up another judge. You need to come back to God. You need to start looking to him. We need a lasting repentance so the change will be lasting as well. Now, having delivered the word of the Lord, and having seen the situation about this Midianite oppression, we now look at the call of Gideon. So reading in verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valour. And Gideon said to him, O oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hand of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, 
Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent, have I not sent you? So he said to him, O oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. So the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon, and we've seen the angel of the Lord before. This is a theophany, a physical manifestation of the second person of the Godhead prior to his incarnation. And uh, we know this because while the angel speaks in verse 12, if you were to jump down to verse 14, it says, Then the Lord turned to him and said, We see that this angel takes on the character of God. This is a good passage to use with Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon under the terebinth tree in Ophrah. Some translations may have oak tree, but terebinth tree is a little bit more accurate. And this is not the first time the Lord has met with people under a terebinth tree. The Lord met with Abraham under the terebinth trees of Mamre in Genesis 12 and Genesis 18. But the significance of the terebinth tree here in Ophrah is that, uh, first of all, it belongs to Joash, Gideon's father. But second of all, it appears to be in a grove. And a grove is a typical location where pagans would build a shrine or an altar to false god. And we're going to see later on that Joash has built an altar to Baal in this location. So this is a, a bold place to, uh, for the Lord to appear. And Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, a wine press is a vat where grapes are put in and are trodden down. And the juice would be collected and fermented into wine. Now, typically a wine press would be within the heart of the vineyard. So there'd be all these vines around concealing it from view. And it wouldn't be uncommon for there to be a pagoda or some sort of covering over the top with ropes dangling down. And so the occupants inside treading down the, uh, the, the grapes would be holding onto the ropes to keep balance. But in this case, the wine press was being used for threshing wheat which uh, is a bizarre thing. But you can see why they're threshing wheat here, because it's concealed, concealed by the vineyard. It's got a covering over top. They're fearful of the Midianites, we are told, um, in order to hide from the Midianites. Now, when it comes to threshing wheat, what you would do is you would throw the wheat into the air and the chaff would separate from the grain the grain being heavier would fall to the ground and the chaff would blow away in the wind. But for this to be really effective, you need to have a threshing floor, which is on a raised elevation. Um, there's an account in 2 Samuel 24 when King David bought a threshing floor from Aruna. And it says uh, David went up to the threshing floor. It was on a, it was on a raised height. Um, but Gideon doesn't want to be on a raised height because he'll be seen by the Midianites. And then they'll come a raiding. Problem is, if you're trying to thresh wheat and on a low level in concealed, first of all, um, it tells us that Gideon is living in fear. And the second thing it tells us is that there's not going to be much, much wheat gained, sorry, much grain gained from the threshing because it's a small area and there's not much wind. So Gideon is living in fear. 
and Gideon is bearing very little fruit. Gideon is living in fear and is bearing very little fruit. And it's into this situation the angel of the Lord comes and says, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valour. And this sounds somewhat sarcastic or at best ironic to us because there is nothing valiant and there is nothing uh, mighty about where Gideon is and what he's doing at this moment in time. But there is more to it than this, because what we are doing is when we look at where Gideon is, we are looking at the man in the natural. But as the Lord speaks, the Lord is looking at the man in the spiritual. He is looking at who he can be through God. And you see that there are two types of people spoken of in the Bible, the natural man and the spiritual man. The natural man is who we are by nature and who we are in our own eyes. But the spiritual man is who we are in Christ and who we can be through God's help. Now, this is spoken of uh, most notably in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 to 16. And I'm just going to read those verses to you quickly. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 15 and 16. Where it says, um, no, not 15 and 16, 14 and 15, I beg your pardon, 14 and 15. But the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. So he talks about the natural man in verse 14 and the spiritual man. In verse 15. And uh, we are introduced to Gideon as a natural man, fearful and unfruitful. But the angel of the Lord sees his potential as a spiritual man. You are mighty, not fearful. You will do valiantly, not unfruitfully. It is a prophetic utterance, but Gideon is in the natural and he can't quite receive this yet. And to anyone looking on, it would seem foolishness. If we didn't already know the end of the story. And as a church and as individual Christians, we need to seek to be spiritual and not natural. We need to be receptive to the things of the spirit and we need to see things from a spiritual perspective instead of just a natural perspective. So when we pray, we should be endeavouring to be led by the spirit of God in our prayers not just coming to God with a shopping list and saying, right, well, OK, we've got to go through this and pray as best as I can. But on a Monday night, when we have those 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 prayer topics that come, pick a topic, hold it before the Lord, ask for the Lord to speak to you and guide you as to how you should pray for that issue. And you'll see that the spirit will lead you. It will give, he will give you a perspective and show you how to pray. That is being spiritual. And when we study, we should seek to hear the Spirit speaking to us through the Word. Sometimes we read through, and we might have to read through the passage a second time, maybe meditate on an individual word or verse, and pray beforehand that the Lord would speak to you. And as you mull the Word of God over, as you chew it over, you'll find that there will be themes and uh, 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 things that come from the Word of God that speak to you. And that is being spiritual. 
And in our lives, we should be endeavouring to discern the burden of the Lord for our lives, not doing what seems to be uh, pragmatic or easy or, or most desirable, but saying, Lord, please place a burden upon my heart for what you would want me to do. Give me a burden for the lost. Give me a burden for, for the role that you wish me to play. And the Lord will impress upon you what he wants you to do, where he wants you to be. And that is being spiritual, being led by the Lord. Ian and I are determined to be spiritual men. And as a church, we are determined to be led by the Holy Spirit in all matters, not operating in the natural. And this does mean having patience. This does mean praying and fasting. That This does mean taking time and waiting for the Lord to speak to you. So when it comes to finding a location, a venue for us to meet, we will not be picking a random location to meet in. We will be waiting for the Lord to direct us when the Spirit will guide us. And let's be clear, we do not want to be in a wine press, concealed and hidden. We want to meet in a threshing floor where it is seen and it can be a witness. OK, uh, verse 13 again. And Gideon said to him, "O oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to this happened to us? And where are all the miracles which our fathers told us about? Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Now Gideon gets one thing right here. He recognises that it is the Lord who has delivered Israel into the hand of the Midianites. But Gideon also gets one thing wrong. He believes the Lord has forsaken Israel. Let me say categorically here this morning, the Lord will never forsake Israel. The Lord will never forsake his children. And because we know he'll never forsake Israel, we can be guaranteed he will never forsake us. He will never forsake you. But we hear the despair in Gideon's voice, don't we? If the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And have you ever been in that situation where you've despaired and you've said to the Lord God, why has this happened to me? This is a natural response. This is a response of the natural man. And the natural man, the natural response will always bring despair and it will always lack perspective. What we need is a spiritual response to our circumstances because the spiritual response brings hope and it brings perspective. Let's read verse 14. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? Now, what is God's response to Gideon's? Gideon's, you know, what's, what's happening to us type scenario? What is the spiritual response to Gideon's situation? Well, step one, hold to the word of the Lord. The angel of the Lord said, the Lord is with you. And Gideon's immediate response is to question the word of the Lord. Our spiritual response to our circumstances is, should first and foremost be hold to the word of the Lord. Don't doubt the word of the Lord. What is God saying to you? What has he spoken into your life? Hold on to that word. Hold on to it fast. Second thing here, notice here that God doesn't respond to Gideon's complaint. The Lord does not play second fiddle to Gideon's whining. 
Instead, he issues Gideon with a directive, a command. He says, go in this might of yours and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So the second way to respond to circumstances spiritually, the first is to hold to the word of the Lord. The second is stop whining. God will not play second fiddle to your whining. You need to operate in faith and obedience. And the third step is start obeying. You know, the Lord does not leave us without direction in life. Sometimes it is simply to keep praying, keep reading your Bible, keep coming to church. For Gideon, it is go in this might of yours, i.e. the might the Lord would give him, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? We need to hold fast to the word of God, stop whining and start obeying what the Lord has guided and directed us to do. Then we go on to verse 15. So he said to him, O my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my father's house. Now, this is Gideon's call and it should be enough. But instead, Gideon responds again in the natural. He sees his weakness and inability. And, you know, in a sense, this is a good thing because recognising his weakness and inability, um, there's humility there. But it's also a bad thing because he fails to trust in the Lord's enabling. Uh, Remember what it says in 1 Corinthians 1 verses 26 to 29. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one could ever boast in the presence of God. Yes, Gideon is the least in Manasseh. Yes, he is weak. But that is God's modus operandi. He takes the weak, he takes the foolish, he takes the unwise, and then through them he demonstrates his power. Don't worry that you don't feel to feel that you've got the giftings and the abilities or perhaps other Christians that you see. If God puts a call on your life, God will equip you to carry out that call. Don't look at yourself. That is the path of the natural. Look to God. That is the path of the spiritual. And it is there as you look to God. God will equip and enable you. And the Lord said to him, verse 16, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. And then he said to him, If now I have found favour in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring you out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come back. So the Lord refers Gideon to his first statement, reassuring Gideon he is with him, affirming Gideon will defeat the Midianites, and the power God supplies. And uh, Warren Wisby says, uh, once God has revealed his will to us, we must never question his wisdom or argue with his plans. Yet Gideon is still wavering in his faith because he now asks for a sign. And really it's a testament to the patience of God that the Lord here is willing to wait for Gideon. I for one am glad that the Lord waits for his children. You know, the Lord waited a long time from the moment he called me to be a shepherd to my moving forward in faith and obedience to that call. 
and the Lord will be patient with you and the Lord will gently encourage you forward. He will not ask more of you than you're able to do and he will take you step by step into the place, into the calling that he has for your life. But we should never question his wisdom or argue with his plans. And so Gideon wants to wants a sign and so he asks um, the Lord there to stay. And we read in verse 19, then Gideon went in and prepared a young goat, this is verse 19, and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and he put the broth in a pot and he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. And the angel of, the God, of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put at the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. And so Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it Lord Shalom. And to this day it is still an offerer of the Abiezerites. <clears throat> so it would seem at this point Gideon knows that it is the Lord who is speaking with him, but he needs further reassurance that it is both God speaking to him and that he will continue to be with him as he obeys the calling. So Gideon makes an offering of a young goat and cakes. And let's remember, this is no small offering, considering that Israel is starving and that there is a shortage in food. And yet he sacrifices a goat and an ephah of flour here. Food is scarce, but the Lord receives the offering after it is placed on a rock. It is then consumed by fire. And as far as I can find, there are only three other places in Scripture where an offering is consumed by fire in the Bible. The first is in Leviticus 9, where Aaron and his sons uh, uh, start to enter into the priesthood and they start to minister. And then the very first sacrifice they make, it is consumed by fire and it serves to approve their ministry, the ministry of Aaron and his sons, as the Levites, as priests. The second place in scripture where an offering is consumed by fire is in 1 Kings chapter 18, where Elijah does battle with the prophets of Baal. And it's Elijah's sacrifice that is consumed with fire. <clears throat> and of course, this serves to approve uh, Elijah's ministry and message. And then the third place is in 2 Chronicles 7, where Solomon dedicates the temple and there's an offering made and it is consumed by fire. And of course, this serves to confirm not only Solomon as king, but the temple as the place where the presence of God dwells. And no doubt the fact that this sacrifice here on the rock before Gideon is consumed by fire serves to approve Gideon's ministry and calling in the same way. When we are called by God, the Lord consumes us with the fire of the Holy Spirit as we become living sacrifices dedicated to his service. Are you consumed by God? Has the Lord placed a fire in your belly? Has the Lord put a burden in your heart? Are you consumed with the fire of his Holy Spirit to do his will? If not, perhaps you need to fall on the rock like this sacrifice, that rock being Christ, and offer your life to him again. There should be a passion 
and enthusiasm in our relationship with God and our desire to serve him. Now, this sign um, causes the fear of the Lord to fall upon Gideon. He now knows he has encountered the true and living God. And uh, he knows that no one can see God and live, as it says in Exodus 33, verse 20. But the Lord is gracious and he speaks graciously and mercifully and tenderly into the heart of Gideon. He speaks peace into the heart of Gideon and he says, peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. And this word impacts Gideon deeply. Both faith and peace seem to grip Gideon at this moment in time. And it marks a spiritual landmark in his life. And he marks this spiritual landmark by building an altar. And he calls the altar, the Lord Shalom, the Lord my peace. Now, faith is not faith unless it is tested and proven. And the Lord will never use a man or a woman until he proves them. It says in Proverbs 17 verse 3, the crucible for silver and the furnace for gold. But the Lord tests the heart. The Lord has called Gideon. Now he needs to test and prove him before he can execute his service. Just as God called Jesus, but he had to be tested and proven in the wilderness. Just as God anointed David, he had to be tested and proven by King Saul. Just as God called Paul, but he had to be tested and proven in 14 unseen years of preparation. So Gideon now needs to be tested and proven. And this is what happens next. And that's where we'll be going to next time. Seeing the testing and the proving of Gideon before he can execute the calling upon his life. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father God, I pray that you take these words and uh, multiply them to us. We pray that, Lord, we would be spiritual men, spiritual women, that we would hear and be directed by your Holy Spirit. And that, Father God, we would live lives which are on fire for you. In Jesus' name. Amen.